pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. So this is the one where Marianne Howie talks about the Lone Ranger's horse, and Pick has an existential crisis. Hey, this is Marianne Howie. I'm the program director for St. Barnabas' residency program and a big friend of the podcast. And I'm super excited to be here with Pick and Tom. We were talking because I had a case New Year's Day. I worked New Year's Day. This New Year's Day was um, tougher than most, besides cleaning up all of the mess of the night before and taking care of the people who are already in the department. We heard the words you never want to hear, which is infant cardiac arrest was coming in. The team assembled. They were in the trauma bay and the infant was brought in, the resuscitation was started, and mom and dad came in later. The infant, unfortunately, was unable to be resuscitated. It was probably a SIDS death. And so going through that process, I was worried about what was going on, both for the family, of course, but then also for my residents, because a lot of my residents are at the stage of life where they are young, early marriage, and or already have some small children at home, and it's particularly tough thing to deal with. Thank you so much, Marianne. That case sounds particularly difficult, uh, and actually this should be a great teaching topic for today's podcast. I think how to deal with that emotional response in a resuscitation is a big thing. There, there are a lot of reasons why a resuscitation is going to get a strong emotional response. Absolutely. I think one of the things after doing this for as long as I've been doing it is I don't think I was aware as a resident of what would be really trigger situations, maybe because everything felt like a trigger situation. But as time has gone on and I've experienced more life and more death in my own family, when someone came in after my father-in-law passed away from end-stage liver cancer and the next patient came in who was ecteric and had lots of ascites, was someone that for me was a challenging person to deal with. My brother died in a fire, and frankly, the reality is that for the next bit of time, I don't think that I can deal with anyone who comes in with a bad burn situation. Yeah, kids are my bugaboo, and that was even before I had kids, so now it's much worse. And I still was trying to work peds, but I definitely noticed that it was much harder to do a, a peds resus, and it didn't start out beginning easy either. I think most of our trainees have triggers, and a lot of them don't even know what they are to begin with. So honestly, I don't like losing. I think we work really hard as doctors, and when somebody dies, I definitely get that feeling of, of loss. You are all that stands between your patient and the reaper, and it is your job. Thou shalt not pass, and then you messed up your job. And when you add to it those cases where the person dies, and I don't know why they die. If someone comes in and they have a basketball-sized hole in them, and they die, then I try my hardest, and, and that's one thing. It's the patient who all of a sudden dies in front of me, and I think maybe it's a PE, but I, I may never know the answer. There's that sense of no closure. I, I sort of lost this battle, and I didn't even know when I had started the battle. So the challenge um, of uncertainty is profound, but the reality is realizing that there's only so many people you can catch before you get to the Reaper, I think is something that you 
gain over time, which is why our residents are particularly sensitive to it. So explaining that to the residents at some point would be really important. But what are other reasons why this would be stressful? I think that everyone is looking for an answer to you know, fill in that uncertainty. Uh, and the answer is usually they're looking at is, is towards themselves. What did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? So there's a lot of uh, sort of personal blame going on. And I think every sort of real uh, existential crisis is a challenge to your identity. And your identity as a doctor is kind of, as you said, I'm supposed to stop this from happening. And once you fail in that, it can really challenge your idea of who you are. There's a lot of shame uh, involved. And uh, we have people who basically are uh, in the mindset of, I can't be a doctor. I'm not meant to do this after all. I made a mistake. I've seen it in the simplest things. I re absolutely remember a resident who blamed themselves for a death because it took them an extra five minutes to get an IV in, or someone else actually had to get the IV. And they thought that that was why the person died. It wasn't necessarily a rational thing. And if you ask them to explain it, I don't think they could, but they had that feeling. And of course, all of all of the identities as physicians of our residents are in formation. So they're trying to figure this all out at the same time that they're also coming to terms with the fact that they are good enough to be doctors. But everybody has a sense of deficiency as they approach training because the whole point of training is to learn more. So another source of stress that I can think of is someone entering the room who has less of the team spirit and starting the blame game. Clearly everything is going wrong because the blood's not here fast enough. Clearly everything is going wrong because of no one has started this medicine that I can't spell and have never heard of. So I think that that uh, is yet another form of stress. So I'm really proud of you for not having the words consultant, hospitalist, or intensivist come out of your mouth during that, uh, you know, person <laughs> to be named later. But to the trainee who may not have the distance to see that that person is nervous scared, unhappy with the level of illness, they're again going to self-project. They're going to say, yes, I am the problem and I really, it's my fault I didn't get the blood sooner and all that stuff. So we've talked about the scope of the problem and there are lots of reasons why there might be this stress. So how do we, how do we deal with this? For me, it starts as I know things are, are coming to an end. One of the things that I always do at the end of a resuscitation when I maybe am thinking about ending it is... I ask the entire group for input, and I make sure that everybody is okay with the idea that we are thinking about termination, and I ask everybody on the in the room if they have any other ideas of how we might help the situation. I think that's a great, great idea. I think it enlists all of the people who maybe were quieter, your uh, nurses and techs and people who are not uh, at the head of the bed, uh, and it kind of makes them feel like a team. I think, you know, one of the things that um, didn't happen as much when we were residents but is now common is bringing the family into the room. I think there's a couple reasons why that's important. Uh, as long as you have the appropriate support and, and can guide that person through being present at the bedside, clearly the literature shows that they have less PTSD after that. So um, that's the family. That's the family. Does that help or hurt the residents and the provider? I think it actually is very good for the family, and I also think it is very good for the residents, even though the residents are sometimes a little trepidatious about what's going to happen when they get in there, and I think almost always the reaction of the family in real life is not as bad and not as severe as they have imagined it to be. Often reality is not as bad as what my imagination is. And then families in there, we've started to draw things to an end, so what else do you do? 
So then if we have decided to end and the family is there, then usually I will call for a moment of silence that we will, you know, with the family there, say this person has died and, you know, they were a human being and we didn't know them until the end here, but let's have a moment of respect for them. And then I will usually take a, make a minute to thank all of the people on the team for their efforts. Now, I've, I've thanked people on the team for their efforts. I've never asked for a moment of silence. I think that's a great idea. And that would have been really applicable in this case with the mom at the bedside as well. So the next thing that I do after this situation, I think it is important to debrief around these cases. We don't do it enough. We find reasons not to do it. But I think it's important to debrief right after one of these things. Typically, you've now been in the room for longer than the charge nurse wants you to be. The rest of the ER is going to hell. Everyone's got to go and take care of the people we can help. But then we want to make some time for that team. So the point of care stuff, the stuff that should happen uh, during the shift is the hot debrief. And then we can separate some later reach outs because not everybody's ready in the moment. Uh, and that cold debrief can happen days, even up to a week later. Uh, most of the time, though, it's done within about a week uh, max. One of the things I want to point out is many of these occasions actually beyond being a teaching moment for the people who are in the room, they are also teaching moments that can be used for the rest of the residency. So I actually, after this particular case, you know, hopefully we won't have that many infant deaths going on on a regular basis, is taking it back to the conference room. And while we're in conference on Wednesday, grabbing some time where my residents can then be, who are in the room, can be present and can kind of be the leaders in this debrief process as they discuss with the other residents who are not present in the room what the process was like for them. So that's more of the cold debrief yeah. that's later. Uh, in the hot debrief, I think there's some really good tools that I don't, I don't necessarily think that they give you a, a better debrief. I think that the debrief needs to uh, be a little bit fluid based on the events that happen. But I think that having a tool to work with makes it more likely that you do it in the first place. And I think that's great. I think there's some set goals that I have when I do a hot debrief. I want the people in the room to understand that we did everything that we could do. And especially the people who are starting to feel a little bit of guilt, uh, I find that this knowledge allows them to process things well uh, and move forward. So that's nice for your uh, perseverating about that extra 30 seconds it took to get that line and in public and with the discussion sort of realizing that that was not the case, giving you permission to say, get the line a little sooner, but that is not what happened here. The other thing I think is incredibly important is at some point in this process right near the event, if the, the leader or in, in my case me, uh, admits my emotional response, admit that I'm unhappy, uh, that it really upset me. Uh, and sometimes it's saying the words, and sometimes it's expressing it in other ways. It almost gives everybody there the per permission to, to feel what they're feeling. Uh, and they shouldn't need it, but giving it is right. I remember being told as a woman in emergency medicine, I should specifically not cry at those moments. I think that's completely false. And that when I bring a mother in who is seeing her child, I'm probably going to cry a little bit. And I think that that's okay. And I think that showing that to our residents is also important, that they're allowed to have emotions around this. And the depersonalization of medical training doesn't always have to hold in these moments. I agree. I, I think that we have what we have learned through a lot of our medical training is how to hide our emotional responses. And now is time to do exactly the opposite. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's so important, as you said, uh, to model that for the residents, right? Because if their training is that you should keep a hold on your emotions, and then with practice we get really good 
at hiding it is almost an effort for us to give ourselves permission to, to do that. So I think it's good for us. I think it's good for them. I think it's good to sort of upset that expectation. So I think this brings the discussion to a close. I think that what we've said here is that the first thing you need to do is admit that there is going to be an emotional response and that there are some teaching things that we can do around it that that help our learners and in some way help ourselves. And I do want to bring it back to that Marianne's cold debrief in conference, I think is a great idea. I think one of the issues with that delayed outreach is uh, we kind of tell ourselves, well, everyone seems okay, but the truth is we don't know who's gonna be okay. Sometimes they don't know who's gonna be okay. We have a lot of attention right now towards burnout in EM and mental health of our residents. And so program directors are always looking for a way to pick those up. And, and this is just another situation where you need to have that radar and you need to have that outreach. I've had charge nurses tell me, hey, this person doesn't look right. Uh, I've seen people come in late. Uh, there are lots of ways that people express this. I think we always have to be on the lookout for it. And one of the other advantages of a cold debrief is the idea that that particular day, for instance, the resident who was leading a peds resuscitation had to walk right into a cardiac arrest for another patient. And so trying to tease out the pieces of all of that overwhelming emotional response, you just can't always do it in the moment. Thank you for being with us, Marianne. So Tom, what is the article of the day? Our article today is Debriefing in the Emergency Department After Clinical Events. A Practical Guide by David O'Kessler in Annals in 2014. Tom, this article is dense. It has a lot of pages. It had a lot of words. I'm frightened. Have no fear. Turns out you could ignore most of those words. and You can get everything you need from this article from Table 1 and Figure. We should have an EM journal that is nothing but tables and figures. Actually, just Table 1 and Figure for every article. And the name of the journal is Ready Table 1. <laughs> Okay, so why do I think this is important? What we really want is we want a piece of paper that shows us how to do a debrief. And so if we start with table one, basically it says guide to creating a debrief program in your ED, which sounds just like what we're looking for. Great, and it says categories, who, what, when, where, why, how, this should be great. It is, although most of it is meaningless. Who and what, what is a debrief, who is everybody, sort of meaningless. When, okay, when they have some, uh... A nomenclature that we use. The hot debrief is the right away in the room, right at the end of the case. And then the cold is the delayed days to weeks later, maybe an outreach. They do put in a warm, which could be you leave the room, do some stuff because your ER is falling to pieces, but then you actually announce overhead, hey team, reassemble, we're going to do the debrief uh, back in the room. And that's a minutes to hours thing. So I kind of like that nomenclature. I actually enjoy reading the where part of this. So it's either in the location where the event occurred as option one. Option two is in a location not where the event occurred. And just in case you need a third option, it's off-site. So the Venn diagram of where for those three things is the universe. Somewhere in the universe, you should debrief. Exactly. We're going to skip the why and move to the how. Now, the how in this, now we move to figure. And I say figure on purpose because it's not figure one or figure A. It is just figure. If you can't figure out the figure, it's the figure. They have a sample debriefing instrument. It also looks very complicated and has lots of words. Well, it has lots of spaces and you can ignore, I would say, 75% of this document. Everything you need is down at the bottom of the page in what looks like a footnote that says, advice for running a team debriefing. That should basically be a poster, that footnote at the bottom of this thing. 
Uh, so it has a, a nice little listing, and I like it because it's kind of a scripted debriefing, so that should help us who haven't done it before. Number one is pick a quiet or isolated space if possible. Start by thanking members for being present and encouraging everyone to participate. Always start by thanking people. I love it. The next part, the purpose of debriefing is for education, quality improvement, and emotional processing. It is not a blaming session. So that's, that's good advice straight across the board. Then they say these debriefings take several minutes typically, and if you have urgent things to attend to, you are welcome to leave. So it sets a nice timeline and gives you permission to step away. Number four, I will briefly review the patient summary, and then we, as an entire team, can discuss what went well and what could have been done better. All goals set. Then the team leader has a summary of the course, they have a group discussion, uh, and people record it. And then probably the asterisk at the bottom is the most important thing. Basically, the asterisk just says, if you are still feeling terribly, consider talking to someone, going to counseling, and it even gives some numbers uh, to help with counseling. Great. So they actually have on this tool uh, from this Texas hospital the resources right on there. But I think the point they're making is you need to kind of have that resource to close the loop. So if we go now back to our table one, there is some good stuff in the post-debriefing part. The main thing there is, is about closing the loop. So that means if things come up, whether they're medical things or even if they're emotional processing things, you have to assign a response to that. Someone has to be the champion of fixing that thing. And we all know that if no one else raises their hand and takes control and says, yes, I will be responsible for it, then guess who's being responsible for it? You are. There you go. Team leader. So that's the uh, end of the article. Great. So remember, this article was debriefing in the emergency department after clinical events, a practical guide by David O'Kessler in Annals 2014. Hey, Vic, what's this week's This Ain't a Thing? This week, I had a patient who had an alcohol history and said, I am not allowed to take Tylenol. And that is not a thing. So I have absolutely been in the room with patients who are told they aren't allowed to take lots of different medicines. And I don't really understand the recommendations. In this case, you're saying, because I have bad liver disease, this medicine is going to harm me. Because I have bad liver disease, I should worry about my liver, and I probably shouldn't overdose on Tylenol, which is the exact same advice I would give to you. Actually, no, you actually might have an alcohol liver thing. I would say the same thing to Marianne, uh, that you shouldn't take more than four grams of Tylenol, so, which is the exact advice I gave to this young woman who did have an alcohol history. So the, the take-home here would really be don't overdose on Tylenol, not that Tylenol is bad for liver disease. And, and it is absolutely true that in, a, in any liver that we could still call a liver, there is enough glutathione to make it so that a therapeutic dose of Tylenol does zero damage at all. Whereas the alternatives, which are opiates, NSAIDs, Ultram, Relafin, anything fun like that, all of those have a larger percentage of hurting you in some way. 100%. So a, I fear Tylenol, although it is still the safest possible thing for your alcoholic patient, uh, in doses less than four grams a day, including in people who are actively having alcoholic hepatitis, as opposed to NSAIDs, where their hepatologists tell them, don't take NSAIDs. Uh, those actually do bad things to kidneys in alcoholics and liver patients particularly. So... NSAIDs in cirrhosis is bad. Tylenol in cirrhosis is good. 
Tylenol and cirrhosis is good, just like it is for everyone else. And no, I didn't tell anybody to take more than four grams a day. It's not that hard. It was in scrubs. Pour Tylenol in your hand. Throw it at the patient. Whatever sticks to the patient, probably a safe dose. Great. And so we should immediately then give it IV? Are we really going to go to cost-benefit, silly, shaman IV things? Um, you can have an IV. You can even put things in the IV. What I'm saying is Tylenol is safe in my liver patient. The lesson of the day is the idea that you can't give Tylenol to liver patients, that's not a thing. Not a thing. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to try today. Marianne? So I think one of the things that I'd like to do is talk about my own triggers with my trainees, and that lets them kind of open up and think about what might be triggering them as well and what situations they want to keep a special eye out for. And that's great. I think it's uh, they may not know themselves, and it's good to explore. I am going to, during that hot debrief, try to figure out what you humans think of as emotion and express them myself, thus modeling the behavior I want to see in my trainees and getting over this idea that we have to beat down uh, every emotional response and uh, fight that medical expectation that we're uh, automatons. Giving other people permission to emote. Uh, I am simply going to say thank you. Thank you to everybody. And I'm going to definitely try the next time I'm in that situation to have a moment of silence. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get around.